So we're coming off the back of a kind of a long holiday break, right? Um, I was talking with some of the students um, this week. Um, we did a kind of an informal get-together and stuff, and it's become Thanksgiving week. I was like, back in my day, we only had two days off, Thursday and, and Friday. I was like, oh, I just, I'm, I'm doing that thing now where I, back in my day when I've talked with our, our teenagers. That's awesome. Um, but we're on the back of this break, and if you haven't already done this, this is normally the time of year when people begin to engage with the Christmas season. So our Spotify playlists, they change, lights go up inside and outside, and we start to watch a number of mediocre at best movies that we always watch, right, in this time of year for the sake of tradition. Everyone has their favorite, favorite Christmas or Christmas season movie. For my mom, it was It's a Wonderful Life. Others of you, it would be Home Alone or A Christmas Story, The Grinch, Maybe the most controversial of all, at least in the age of the internet, though, is Die Hard. Yes, the 1988 action movie starring Bruce Willis can, controversially, albeit, be counted as a Christmas movie. There's great debate on whether or not it counts and why it may count. It's certainly the most bloody movie on the list. There's all kinds of language that's maybe not appropriate for all, maybe some of yours, but maybe not all family gatherings, right? This isn't the type of movie that the city of Fairhope is going to be showing in the streets anytime soon. But about Die Hard, maybe it's been a while if you've, if you've, since you've seen it or maybe you've never seen it, seen it at all, it does, in fact, take place on Christmas Eve and into Christmas Day overnight. There's actually a, a number of points in the movie where there is Christmas music in the movie because it takes place during a holiday party. And if you think about the themes, I'm, I'm not, hopefully I'm not overanalyzing this, but there actually is a thread in the movie where there is this family that's a part that's trying to come back together, right? And the world does get saved. So please don't hear me likening Bruce Willis's character to Jesus at all in this analogy. That's not what I'm trying to do either, nor am I intent on trying to settle this debate. That's for you to argue about at your holiday parties. But I mention this because we all have some kind of Christmas movie that we are fond of. And as I was thinking about that, it reminded me of the power that stories have in our lives. I think part of the reason we are drawn to many of these Christmas movies is that we, want, we watch them because we want to feel a certain kind of way. Maybe we want to feel the way that's reflected on the screen in front of us, or maybe we have a fond memory. There's a nostalgia factor of, I used to watch this movie with these people, and that's what I want to kind of bring back into to my sense of feeling right now. I think there's a longing sometimes that, that things might look like the way that they do in our movies. And perhaps that longing is actually intensified when there's a dissonance between our real lives and the lives that we see projected in all the numerous hundreds of thousands of Hallmark movies, right? But I think the reason that this resonates is that as human beings, there's something in us that we are hardwired to seek out stories. And I think there's a reason that, that stories are helpful for us. 
Stories help us to make meaning out of the world. If you'll look in your bulletin, I'd ask that there's a quote in there. It's from a Catholic philosopher named Alasdair McIntyre. And I remember coming across this in seminary, and it made a bunch of things click for me. Here's what the quote says. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what stories, of what story or stories do I find myself apart? And I think if we were to think about this a bit, maybe this is something for you to do during the week or later on today, the stories that we tell about ourselves, about our families, about our communities, about our church communities, they really do give us a a sense of a way of how do we navigate life in the world as we perceive it. It, If we're we're not sure, we might have a story or a person that we, we go to and say, I might want my life to look like this, so maybe this this is what I need to do. So today is Christ the King Sunday. Christ the King Sunday is always the last Sunday of the church calendar year. Every time we worship and we celebrate the Eucharist, we do proclaim the reign of King Jesus. But when our calendar year gets put together, there's a thought that maybe we need to put some extra special emphasis on this for the last day. This is something Father Robert reminded us last year, and it actually comes out of godly play. So this is the way that godly play talks about, um, some of you may remember this illustration, talks about how the calendar year works together. And it's actually cyclical in nature. Father Robert had a rope, and he had two ends of the rope. This, again, comes from the godly play story, and it talks about how there's a, a beginning to the rope and an end to the rope but you're not sure which is which. And when you join it together, the beginning is the end and the end is the beginning. And it creates actually a circle. And that's how we tell time in the church. Our church calendar reflects the cyclical nature. And the cyclical nature of the stories is really, I think, an invitation to inhabit the biblical story more and more and more again and again and again every year. There might be a detail that, because of our life circumstances, we might have known all our lives, but it, it manifests itself in a different way. That it's not just a linear progression of time where it's one and done, I've read the Bible, now I can move on with my life. But we're actually invited into the cyclical story to live in with Jesus. So this morning, I want to focus on this big picture story of Scripture and how Christ is at the center of it. And I think that's actually an invitation for us as we walk into this Advent season, to say, how are we living into this Jesus story that's played out in Scripture? I actually think it's impossible for us to understand what it truly means to say that Jesus is king without taking the whole story of Scripture into account. We won't see all the nuance there. Yes, we can worship Jesus and make that statement if we don't know the Bible forwards and backwards, but I think as we dig into the story of Scripture, we'll see that there's so much there. Maybe we've even, in our familiarity with Scripture, we've maybe missed some of these details. I know for me, when I was studying in college and later in seminary, really latching on to this idea that the Bible is one big story while still giving attention to the details of each particular book is really what helps Scripture come to life. 
not only was I studying that in my study of Scripture, but like I mentioned, this is around the time in my life that I got exposed to the Anglican Church in the liturgical year. And so I got this double dipping of the story of Scripture in Scripture itself and then how we live that out in our worshiping together. Um, actually, a great resource that does this really well, a lot of you maybe have this in your homes, is the Jesus Storybook Bible. The Jesus Storybook Bible has fantastic biblical narrative theology in it. Like, read it, and you will see the way it takes the Old Testament and weaves Jesus' story into it. It's, it's masterful. It's not just like a thing for kids. I find myself, when I read it with our daughter, of just marveling at just what a great job it does of putting all the stories that might be in bits and pieces together into a cohesive whole. Um, another book that was really helpful for me that I'll mention is this book called The Drama of Scripture by Bartholomew and Goheen. Um, again, it does a really great job of kind of doing like a cliff note sort of overview of the Bible, but as a big picture story, not saying this book is about this and this book is about this, and, and that's all important, but saying how do all those collective pieces fit into this whole? So um, Anglican bishop and, and um, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has a metaphor that I find really helpful to think about this story as scripture thing. He talks about the Bible as a five-act play, but he says, here's the catch. That fifth act, the last act, is actually unfinished. And so our job as the church is to take what we know about the first four acts and the beginning of the fifth act and then figure out what does it mean to then faithfully live out that last act until Christ does come again in glory. So what I'm going to do next is hopefully it doesn't feel like belaboring the point, but some of us may actually not be as familiar with this five-act story. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend about five-ish minutes or so and just retell the story of the Bible with this five-act frame. So a, little bit, a lot of talking. I invite you, though, to engage the story. Think about the whole. If it's helpful, maybe even close your eyes and, and listen to the story, because I think it may hit you in a different way, no matter how unfamiliar or familiar you are with the Bible. Okay, Act 1, creation. Start at the beginning, good place to start. We, we are introduced to characters, namely God, this creator God, who out of the love that exists within God's self as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creates a world and creates a world with the purpose of loving it, of calling it good and beautiful. God creates diversity in creation. Aren't we so glad that God didn't just make one type of tree? But God, in flexing his creative muscles and creating more things to love, makes all kinds of fish and animals and trees and people. When we come to people, People are the capstone, if you will, of God's creation. They are the only thing in all of creation that gets to bear the image of God, that has a particular likeness to God that is unique from the rest of the created order. And God doesn't just create people and say, here you are, you're in my image, go do whatever you want. God actually gives humanity a job, a task. He says, Take care of my creation as I would. That's part of this extension of being made in the image of God. And so that's where we are, right? Again, we're only in the first two chapters of Genesis at this point. 
So now we can move on to Act 2. Act 2, it often gets called the fall. I think another helpful word for thinking about what's happening in Act 2 is, I call it this in student ministries, we call it disruption, right? God's good created order, all of a sudden there is disruption that's happening. Adam and Eve don't trust in God's goodness and God's faithfulness, right? There's the snake and there's all these questions that come into play. But they, the, what's fundamentally happening is a questioning of God's goodness, of can I trust God in the way that he's made the world, or do I know better, right? Do I, am I going to do things my way? And things get disrupted in all kinds of ways. Obviously, the relationship between God and Adam and Eve is challenged in a way it's never been challenged before so far in creation. Adam and Eve, their relationship with one another is challenged and disrupted. Their, even their relationships with themselves are disrupted. Remember, this is the first time where they notice that they are naked and they feel shame. Their sense of self has been changed. And obviously, their, their relationship with the created order is disrupted as well. And I think there's a way of reading the Bible where we can focus on that in an unhelpful way. We can only see the disruption and the chaos and the wrong and the breaking of the rules. But here's what's really beautiful about Scripture. Yes, there is disobedience. Yes, there is disruption. Yes, Adam and Eve are even cast out of the garden. But do you know what? God has not abandoned them. God's love for them has not changed. That's what moves us into Act 3, the story of Israel. So in God wanting to love these imperfect people, he commits himself starting with Abraham, and he makes this promise to Abraham. He promises to Abraham that he's going to bless his descendants. And how does he describe this blessing? It's a big blessing, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And sometimes I think when we read this part of Scripture in Genesis 15, we hear this blessing, and we just get so excited about the blessing that we miss the end of the blessing. Abraham and the people of Israel were not just blessed so they could have nice, cool stuff, that they could be prosperous. They were blessed explicitly because God wanted them to bless others, to bless the nations of the earth, to share God's love. And the rest of the Old Testament story is really the ways that Israel continues to mess this up, to continues to get things disrupted. In some ways, you might even say that the rest of the Old Testament, it kind of resembles the Die Hard movie, right? It's really violent and bloody and gory. I mean, it's not the sanitized version that we can think of in Sunday school lessons. When we connect all these things together, we see the different ways that despite Israel's best attempts to fight back against God, to reject the blessing he wants to give them, God, because of his covenant love, how is God's love described in the Old Testament? Patient, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God persists with these stubborn people who just are intent on disobeying him. But all of this is setting up what happens next in Act 4. In Act 4, we see Jesus. Jesus comes to be the fulfillment of everything that Israel was supposed to do, what Adam and Eve were supposed to do and they failed to do. And this is the big plot twist of everything. 
is that God himself enters into his story in his son, incarnate, 100% God, 100% human in a way that we have such a hard time understanding, but is the truth. And God himself enters into creation to rescue it, to fix it, to set things right. Jesus comes and he reveals God's kingdom in in different ways, in ways that the religious leaders of the day couldn't see in both word and deed. In the story in Act 4, it comes to its climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus, where God is shown to be truly king, and he conquers sin and death through his great love for his people and through all of humanity. So that's where we are. That's an overview of the Bible, Acts 1 through 4. There's a lot that could be said about our scripture text today, but I think they, they consistently call back to this larger story. As a reference point, I could have spent the whole time talking about Ezekiel and the the bad ruling that was happening in, in Israel and the way that God promises to enter in. But note this, Ezekiel takes place at the time of the Babylonian exile about 600 years before Christ came. At this point in time, God's people are in rebellion again. They've been invaded by a foreign nation, actually been taken over, and, and they've been scattered throughout the lands. The promise of God that they received in Abraham, it looks really tenuous, if not impossible, at this point in Israel's story. But what does God do in verse 11? God says, I, I myself will shepherd the lost sheep, will come and enter in and gather my people, and not just my people, but all the nations of the earth back into, into my land, right? And, and Israel is probably struggling to understand, God, how can this be? We are not where we're supposed to be. But that's exactly what he's doing. And this actually turns into a prophecy. A lot of us are familiar with Jesus' statement in John's gospel, I am the good shepherd. When Jesus says that, he's not just making a nice metaphor. He's actually saying this is the fulfillment, the embodiment of Ezekiel 34, of God promising to be the shepherd that takes care of his sheep. It's a continuation of the story. Let's look at the Corinthians passage quickly. Paul is helping us see how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection fit into the cosmic story that God is unfolding before our eyes. Paul writes that all of us died through Adam's rebellion, but in this mysterious and wonderful way, we have all been made alive through the faithfulness of God incarnate in human flesh in Jesus. His resurrection signals that Act 5, this fifth act, is underway, that sin and death will not have the last say, that God would be all in all, or to put it another way, that Christ would be made king fully. So now coming back to now, right? Act 5 is the story of the church that starts in the book of Acts, but continues to this day as we await Christ's return to set all things right and to rule on on earth as it is in heaven. So what are we supposed to do? Well, following the logic of this five-act play, we're supposed to take our cues from Acts 1 through 4 to figure out how do we live into the story now? What we do in the meantime before the final coming of Jesus still matters. We are waiting for Christ to return fully. 
I mean, her introduction to the season of Advent, Anglican priest and beloved author of our church, Tish Warren, we've, met, we've read a number of her books through, through um, the years, she writes about what she perceives as the three Advents or three comings that are happening in the Christian life. There's the first Advent, the incarnation of Christ being born, which we celebrate on Christmas. There's a middle Advent, though, the waiting that we experience for Christ to continue to work in our lives right now, the process of being made more and more like Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And then there's a final advent when Christ comes to judge and reign forever with his people as king at the end of all time. So I think our challenge before us today is that we live in this weird in-between time. We live in this middle advent, if you will. And our challenge is to continue to keep God's story before us and ask how are we embodying that story in our own lives. There's all kinds of stories that might vie for our attention, that might tell us how we think we might live. Um, One way I think about this is I, I share this with our older high school students is they're in this process of saying, what does my life look like? The, the world is open. There's all kinds of possibility. There's questions about purpose and meaning. What should I do when I grow up, right? And so what's the story that our culture often tells about what this experience should be like? Well, you graduate college and then, you know, you gra- oh, sorry, back up. You graduate high school and then you just go to college. And then after you get a college and a good degree, you should get a job. And hopefully it's like the job you've been wanting all your dreams and, you know, it's just there for you. And then you start a family and other things might come into play. But that's this story, this narrative that guides the way we think about our future a lot of times, right? And even as adults, we still get caught up in that story sometimes. It can frame what we think. And what I've noticed in working with teenagers is that this can create a lot of anxiety. Even for students that are committed to following Jesus, the anxiety piece can actually be, what is God's one plan for my life? What, what are, what's, if we're following this linear time thing, how do I keep on that little teeny tiny tightrope and walk it? You know, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I doing the right career that God always wants me to do? And the, and the conversation that I try to have with them is saying, maybe there's not just one thing that God might want you to do. Maybe it's not about where you end up on this line, but really the thing that God is more concerned about is who you're becoming in the process. Are you being faithful to Jesus wherever you are in that place? Because that's actually what God cares about. God doesn't care if you're a banker or you work at Publix or you're a freelance artist who's struggling to make ends meet or whatever. You can honor God in every single one of those ways. But it's about how are you living out the story that God has before you that matters. I think Matthew 25 is another way for us to think about how do we participate in this big picture story that God has. This is a, this is a well-known passage, right? There's a lot to be said about feeding those who are in need of food, giving drink to those who, who don't have access to water, about people who are new, who are who need a friend, who are sick, who, you know, are, are in prison and need to be visited. There's all kinds of things that are there. And oftentimes it gets talked about in terms of mercy ministry. 
The question I want to ask us, though, as we think about this, if this is something that Jesus is calling his disciples into doing, and this is one way we can embody that story, is asking ourselves the question I thought about this week and it was really convicting. Am I able to live out this part of God's story? Do I have time and space in my life where I can be inconvenienced with people who are in this kind of need? And if I don't have that kind of space in my life, maybe I've let other stories capture my attention in a way that isn't fitting with God's story. In closing, I think Advent is an invitation to re-engage this big story of Scripture, to retell it in our lives, not just to consume it as, as listeners only, but to participate in it fully, of living out this fifth act, if you will. I think it's also an invitation, right, to get to not get swallowed in the worst of the Christmas season story that we can see around us, the frantic activity, the consumerism as a means of happiness story that can, that's out there, right? We, we see it. Black Friday, hello. But that can capture our attention if we're not careful, if we're not living out the Jesus story. So in Advent, we intentionally, we slow down, we wait, we enter into God's story. I think by entering his story, we will make sense of our own stories that Jesus continues to invite us into until he comes again as king. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.